0: Hello, hello, and welcome back to another episode of
1: the Plant Powered People Podcast. I'm Michelle Kane, founder of World of Vegan. And I'm Tony Okamoto, founder of Plant Based on a Budget and Food Sharing Vegan. And we are your
0: hosts. And on this show, we talk with plant powered people from all around the globe about various aspects of plant based living to empower you to learn, explore, and evolve in a kind, sustainable, and healthy direction, all while eating the most delicious food and having a ton of fun. An important part of food is cheese. Cheese is the foundation of so much struggle and joy when you learn how to do it right as a plant-based eater. So today we're so excited to be bringing on the queen of vegan cheese herself, Miyoko Shinner she's going to be talking all about making vegan cheese cool. Long gone are the days when plant based cheese was a rubbery block that refused to melt. If you've been vegan for a few decades, you know what I'm talking about. Today, we have every shape and flavor and variety of cheese that you can possibly imagine. We have everyday cheeses, cheese shreds, artisan cheeses, gourmet cheeses. We have entire grocery store shelves lined with plant based cheeses of every variety. We have fully vegan cheese shops. Sprouting up all around the world. And of course, we have Miyoko, who makes incredible vegan cheese and has been paving the path for vegan cheese makers everywhere. And today's guest, Miyoko,
1: deserves a lot of credit for that. Miyoko is a tenacious, award winning vegan celebrity chef. Her passion for her craft and mission is unrivaled. The publication of her groundbreaking book, Artisan Vegan Cheese, kicked off the start of the vegan cheese revolution. We're so excited to have her on today. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Sucker Punch and Almond Cow. Sucker Punch Pickles. I love Sucker Punch Pickles. They're known for their on-the-go pickle packs and juices, and they offer a delicious and convenient way to enjoy pickles anytime, anywhere. They're made with a commitment to quality and health-conscious consumers in mind. Sucker Punch ensures that their pickles are non-GMO and provide a natural and wholesome snacking option. They're also bursting with flavor. My favorites are the Snappy Classic Pickle and the Fiery Heat Three Pepper Spears because I love spicy. You can enjoy them in your vegan burgers. You can put them in a sandwich on your vegan hot dogs. I straight up eat them out of the jar. They're that good. To explore the range of products and learn more about Sucker Punch, visit GetSuckerPunch.com, G-E-T-S-U-C-K-E-R-P-U-N-C-H.com. We'd also love to give a big thank you to our next
0: sponsor, Almond Cow. I got an Almond Cow plant milk machine several years ago, and I absolutely love it. It is the easiest way to make your own plant milk, your own nut milk or oat milk right at home, and it takes almost no time. All you need to do is add in some raw nuts or oats. Um, You can add a little sweetener if you want, maybe some dates, maple syrup, a little vanilla extract for flavor if you like, add water and you're done. Really, just nuts, water, press the button. And in one minute, you have delicious homemade plant milk. It's so simple. It's a great budget-friendly hack because at the store, you're going to pay $350 to $5 for a carton of milk. You're paying for 97% water and a big non-recyclable container. So almond cow makes it possible to have zero waste milk or at least reduce your waste to be saving money over time. And it's just so makes it so simple. Plus it takes away any preservatives or other stuff that shows up in store bought milk. So check out Almond Cow, you can find them at almondcow.co. They also have awesome social channels you can check out. We really love the Almond Cow.
1: Hi Miyoko, welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast. It is so exciting to chat with you today. Michelle and I are huge fans.
2: Well, hi Tony. I'm Michelle. It's so nice to to chat with you guys again. It's pretty amazing
0: how much you've accomplished. You have a really fascinating history that led you to basically completely revolutionizing the plant-based cheese landscape, but we'd love to start at the very, very beginning. Can you paint a picture for us of like what your childhood and upbringing looked like specifically regarding food?
2: Oh, my gosh. Um, Absolutely. Um, Well, my childhood, I was born in Japan and uh, I lived ate a very, very traditional Japanese diet out in the countryside right next to the rice patties in Japan. And I still remember the very first time I had ice cream. My mother got me all dressed up. We got in a taxi. Uh, I knew we were going somewhere special. We went to this fancy restaurant in a department store and we sat there at this empty table and the waiter brought out two parfait glasses with two perfect scoops of vanilla ice cream. And that was my first introduction to ice cream. And I thought I had been transported. I thought this was in, I was, it was this magical food. I could not believe it. I still remember savoring every single bite of that perfect scoop of ice cream. Um, You know, otherwise I ate rice and miso soup and, and fish and vegetables and just very traditional Japanese foods, um, in Japan, a snack for a kid was a roasted sweet potato. So, you know, we had a the sweet potato seller that would come around the neighborhood uh, with this coal-laden cart of these smoky roasted sweet potatoes that were so wonderful. So it was like the ice cream truck, except for it was a sweet potato man. Um, and so it was just a very, very different approach to food. And then we moved to the United States when I was young, um, I was about seven years old, and uh, you know, we—my mother was trying to learn how to cook American food and trying to uh, Americanize things, but I was still eating fried rice and onigiri and and you know, taking food like that to school with me. And and the kids were all like fascinated, wondering why I wasn't eating sandwiches or whatever. Um, and I remember the very first time I had pizza, and that was also a really special occasion because I was probably about eight years old or so, and. Went to a party and I thought, oh my God, this is the moment I'm going to become a true American because I'm going to eat this American food I've never had before. And everything's going to be different after this. And I thought it was the most disgusting thing I'd ever tasted. Um, And I could not believe that people were like, you know, crazy about pizza. Because for me, having a very clean Japanese, low fat sort of palate, eating something that oily and just, I don't know, it was just mucousy and kind of gross actually. So that was kind of how I grew up. Um, And then by the time I was 12, I decided to become a a, a vegetarian. So my actual contact with meat was really only like four or five years because I didn't eat much of it in Japan. And, and uh, so, you know, there's just a lot of um, types of meat that I've just never eaten in my life. Um, And I did learn to to love cheese because as a vegetarian, I thought that was how I had to get my protein. Um, And I did become a huge cheese aficionado, which kind of, you know, uh, explains a lot about what I did later in life.
0: Oh, wow I especially love the sweet potato cart what I would give for my toddler to have that experience growing up rather than an ice cream truck which we just call the music truck so that we don't have to uh you know pretend the ice cream is driving by every second but that is that is so cool and you ended up developing quite a palette for for all kinds of food but especially it seems you took an interest in gourmet food you wrote so many cookbooks which I I'm sure most people know about, but a lot of people listening are maybe newer in the plant-based space and they know you for your cheese. They know you for Miyoko's that they see in the store. And it's so cool, all of the things that you did leading up to that, all of your different cookbooks. You read a whole cookbook on vegan Japanese cooking and the homemade vegan pantry and more. Can you talk a little bit about your journey with food and in plant-based eating and some of the cool things that you did along the way leading up Uh, to the pre Miyoko's founding?
2: Yeah, thank you for asking. Well, you know, in my mid-20s, after college, I went back to Japan and uh, I wanted to sort of get back in touch with my roots and felt it was so important to move back there. Um, While I was there a few years in, I was a subscriber to Vegetarian Times Magazine. And I think there was an article that came out about the dairy industry. You know, like many, many vegetarians, I at the time believed that Cows were happy grazing in the grass and just having a gas, and and that was you know that there was nothing really harmful about dairy products until I read this article about the truth behind dairy, and I made a decision then that I would discontinue eating dairy and I would become a vegan. Um, That was, a, you know, just something that sort of that was unheard of in Japan at the time, and I had by then become this. I I was just a, a food lover, you know. I I gave uh, we had like baking contest when I was in high school at my house that I featured. And I love throwing parties and, um, I had apprenticed with a caterer when I was in college. Um, and I'd been introduced to French and Italian cuisine, sort of continental cuisine is what sort of, it was called back then. Um, and I had started to read and study all these, uh, French cookbooks and just became enamored, especially with French cuisine. I thought that was the penultimate, uh, cuisine of the world. Um, and in Japan, uh, unbeknownst to a lot of people, Tokyo has more Michelin starred restaurants than all of France. And just within walking distance of my house, there were probably four or five French restaurants and bakeries. So I was frequently dining at them, eating whatever I could that was, you know, vegetarian, um, not, not animal products, but you know, I would, I would opt for things that could be, that were very cheese centric. Um, and I just developed very, very rich taste buds. Um, for me, in fr- um, when I was in college, I had these, these cheese and wine parties in my dorm room. Every Friday night, uh, I would buy all these fancy cheeses and introduce people who back in the 1970s were still eating you know, craft Singles. And and I was the kind that was eating Limburger and Brie and Camembert and Cambazola and all of these sort of fancy cheeses. Um, and so when I gave it all up, I had to figure out how do I replicate these tastes, and at the time, the the, the so called vegetarian and vegan cookbooks back in the nineteen eighties were really very sort of hippy dippy, um, and they focused on you know I don't know lentil loaf and, and tofu this and tofu that. So I wanted to see if there was a way to really bring some of that richness to vegan food and to really show people that you could eat this way. So I started having these dinner parties. I thought I would embark on this crusade to really sort of reinvent French and Italian cuisine, uh, but do it with vegan ingredients. And so I embarked on this uh, this Friday night dinner series. And I started inviting people to my house every Friday night for a 12-course dinner. Um, it was a tasting menu uh, back before there was a word for tasting menu. Um, and... Um, it, and I just started experimenting. Um, this is what I did. I I was just so passionate about, you know, how do I recreate these rich flavors? Um, and one thing led to another. And uh, next thing you know, there were journalists coming to my house and people in the food industry. And I started getting uh, some recognition in articles in magazines. And I started teaching cooking all over Japan and in department stores and, and schools. And I got a um, I started developing menus and I was going to start um, a restaurant in Japan as well, too. Um, and uh, I partnered with this guy uh, with whom who had a restaurant and with whom I was going to open sort of a, the first vegan restaurant in Tokyo. Um, and that um, just to bring the story to a close rather quickly turned out to be sort of a, a nightmarish situation because um He was connected to the Japanese Yakuza, which is like the mafia of Japan. Um, And my life uh, really got very ugly for a, uh, a few months. And that is when I left Japan and came back to the United States.
0: Wow. I there's even so much there that is is new to me and while that sounds extremely traumatizing um what a gift the United States got when you when you came here to ch- to share your foodie magic, your cheese magic with the world. So Food, cheese is obviously a huge pain point for people. Like we've all heard people say, oh, I'd love to go vegan, but I could never give up cheese, right? So go vegan, but don't give up cheese. That used to be the thing because... at the time, a decade plus, two decades ago, there really wasn't vegan cheese on the table. There wasn't vegan cheese in grocery stores. And when it first started coming to the table, it definitely was not artisan or gourmet style cheese. It was sh- cheese shreds that that you work a little bit hard to melt onto your pizza. Right. Um, so how did that path go? Like there was there's been so much change and innovation over the past decade that it almost is mind-blowing from the consumer from my perspective from consumer perspective. How did this change happen so much and you were like at the root of it, like developing the rest, the recipes and then forming a whole like entity around it. Can you share a little bit about that process for you?
2: Yeah. You know, I think that was also a 20 year history because it started in the 1990s when I moved back to the United States and I opened a restaurant Um, and there I tried to make dishes that, you know, had some cheese in it. We actually had a cheese platter uh, that was made out of fermented tofu, actually. And I had an oat cheese, actually, that an oat mozzarella that um, on top of a seitan parmigiana. Um, And so I was trying to make these rudimentary cheeses. um, And I was trying to figure out like, so tofu is often called soy cheese. And I couldn't figure out, okay, well, you make, and I knew how to make tofu. And tofu is made in a very similar way to dairy cheese, except it's missing the fermentation process. So in uh, dairy cheese, what you do is you, you take an enzyme, which is typically animal rennet, but they also have vegetable rennet now, and you add that to milk, which coagulates the proteins and separates the curds from the whey. Um, and then there's also a lactic acid bacteria that's added to it that starts the fermentation process, drops the pH, and turns it from a sweet milk into something that's a little bit you know, cheesier, that's more acidic. Um, And tofu is made in a very similar way. You add an enzyme to soy milk, which coagulates the soy proteins. And then the curds are separated from the whey and the curds are pressed just like in cheese making. And you make tofu. What's absent there is uh, lactic acid bacteria that ferments the, the tofu. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, well, if you can make cheese with dairy milk, like this was like a question in my mind that just like literally was stewing for years and years and years and I kept trying to replicate it in some ways with soy, and I just wasn't successful. Um, at the time, I, I just I didn't really understand enough about fermentation. I didn't know how to actually ferment the soy milk. I didn't know where to, where those cultures came from, um, and so I would always just end up with with tofu, and then I would add lemon juice to it or something like that, and it just didn't quite work. So I started making cheese out of yogurt. Um, I think this was probably around, I don't know, the late 1990s, uh, early 2000s. I can't remember. I had another natural food company at the time actually making uh, meat alternatives (laughs) at a time, you know, before that was cool. Um, And I was a competitor to Tofurky back then. So cheese was not my primary focus, although I did have a non-dairy whipped topping at the time called Hip Whip. And the tagline was, is cooler than cool. Um, so I was sort of getting in, yeah, the non-dairy space at the time, but but no, I wasn't making cheese commercially. Um, so then in the 2000s, I believe uh, the raw food movement was sort of getting started and there were raw foodists that were making so-called nut cheese, but they were just sort of like nut pastes and, you know, not really fermented. They weren't, but they were onto something and I could feel it. And I thought, okay, what if I instead of just using soy, what if I use nut milk uh, or or legume milk or other things and uh, could ferment it? So uh, from the the uh, the the raw foodists, I learned about rejuvelac because I think that was the missing piece was how do I ferment these things? Because there was no culture available uh, for plant-based cheese making. So I was able to use rejuvelac, which is a probiotic beverage, to uh, ferment all sorts of milks, whether it was cashews or almonds or oat milk or legume milk. And I just started playing around with all the possibilities. So I was doing this all throughout the 2000s. And this culminated in the book that I wrote that was published in 2012 called Artisan Vegan Cheese, which was the first book, I believe, worldwide written on the subject of making cheese using uh, actual fermentation processes.
0: It's crazy. I remember when your book came out and it was completely revolutionary. No one had even thought about making their own cheese from scratch before. It was just a lot of complaining about what was in the supermarket and whether it worked or not. (laughs) Uh, And I feel like the mainstream people who are going vegan did not even have that in their mind. And suddenly, I remember the blog sphere exploding and everyone just being like, oh my God, we can actually make her own cheese and it's actually delicious. Um,
2: well, and that is really my point. Like I just wanted to empower people. I really, and I still believe this to this day is, you know, as much as you can make information as open source as possible and empower people to take, uh, the, uh, power back into their own kitchens. Um, it's better not just for, Every it's better for everybody. It's better for the planet. It's better for the animals. It's better for society, for conviviality to bring people together. Um, And it makes us less dependent on, you know, on having to buy things. Now I I realized people aren't going to do that. And that was the problem was that even though that was my intention, you know, people kept saying, oh my God, I mean, I made the cream cheese once and it was fantastic. But it's such a hassle. Can't you just make the products? And I'd rather buy it from you. Uh, You know, which is why I eventually started the business. But I, you know, to this day, I I still believe, you know, I still encourage people to, to try their hand at, at cheese making or just any kind of culinary adventure in their own kitchens. And, you know, I've continued to share recipes, um, even though I, I started a company that does this.
0: Yeah, it's cool. I remember a lot of events and gatherings at the time I was very involved in my community and we'd host vegan potlucks and just various events. And there'd always be someone who would bring a cheese that they made from your book. And everyone there was so stoked because not everyone has the time or interest or passion of making the things from scratch, but everyone wants to eat it, right? And so we all got to try things without having to make it all from scratch ourselves. But I definitely encourage everyone to give it a try because it is really fun. It's a fun activity. And if you love it, you can integrate it into your life. But I tend to be a little bit lazy in the kitchen, even though I have a cookbook and food is my career and my life. I also am a busy mama. And sometimes I just want to grab cheese that's made and eat it. Or I'm preparing for a gathering and I don't have to the time to put together like four different cheeses for a cheese platter. And you made it possible for me in 10 minutes to swing by Whole Foods and put together this beautiful, epic cheese platter that is just as good, if not way better than its dairy counterpart for friends coming over. Like you made that possible for vegans. And so first, thank you. But second, how did we get there? Like you took this concept in your mind and this thing that you were doing, um, for your own personal gatherings and transformed it into a reality that existed in our own local, or if you're lucky enough to live by a supermarket that carries it, uh, many people's local grocery store. Can you tell us like, how did you, that's a huge step. (laughs) How did that happen? Yeah. You know, it's,
2: I, I don't really know. I mean, it was, I didn't have it completely planned out because if we think back to 2012 or 2013, when I first conceived of the idea of starting a business, the so-called alt-protein space that everyone talks about now or food tech didn't exist. I mean, nobody really thought about alt-protein or, you know, um, uh, any of this at the time and, and and the category didn't exist. And and no one thought that this category could just explode to where it is today. Um, and so, um, I just thought, well, I'll start making cheese. People love it enough. And I'll open up a little shop in, in, you know, in my community, um, and I'll do some o- online sales and, you know, I'll employ a handful of people and it'll be this cute local business. Man, that was really my intention, um, I wanted to spark the imagination to show people what was possible uh, with plants, um, and to prove to the world that you know, plants uh, plant milk cheese could be really, really exciting and delicious. That it didn't have to just be this horrible processed oil, you know, oil based um, shreds and slices or or things like that. But it could really be a wonderful alternative uh, to animal dairy cheese on your cheese platter. And that was really my intention. So I really didn't have big plans or anything. It was really sort of an activist standpoint or activist, I don't know, initiative to just show the world what was possible. Um, And, you know, I thought it would also be cool if others in other parts of the world did the same thing. And we had little vegan cheese shops all over the world. In fact, I visited so many little vegan cheese shops that Got their start for my cookbook all over the world in Budapest and Rome and London and um, other parts of the world. Just all over Singapore, um, and it's really exciting to see so many people taking this up and uh, you know creating beautiful cheeses. Even taking it one step further, perhaps. Um, I'm. That's probably the most satisfying thing. For me is to know that I've inspired a lot of people, um, and you know, given them the idea that they too can start something uh, that empowers them. Um, But anyway, so I started this little enterprise in Fairfax, California, um, and um, we decided to go uh, online. And so our e-commerce sales started on a Friday night, and by Monday morning, we had about fifty thousand dollars in orders. And I was absolutely shocked. I mean, it was like, oh my God, we hadn't even planned to make that much this month. How are we going to make it? And we just were working night and day until you know, 11 o'clock at night, hand wrapping cheese, putting them in these little boxes that we were folding by hand because the design for the boxes was honestly just so <laughs> stupid. It was so inefficient the way we designed them. They were like made like pizza boxes. We We actually had to fold them and Tuck them into the little, you know, put the 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 little uh, the whatever it's called the the stub or whatever into the little hole. I mean, it was just really dumb the way we designed them, um, but it was such a beautiful presentation and uh, ever so inefficient. Um, but it, that was that was co- sort of how it got started, and then within a few months um, we landed uh, accounts at Whole Foods in NorCal. And, uh, I realized that I need to shift the business model at that point. And the little retail shop never opened up. It turned into the e-commerce, uh, warehouse <laughs> and, uh, yeah, within a year we were at Whole Foods nationwide and in, uh, a few thousand stores and it just, the company, the business just went in a completely different tra- trajectory from, you know, how I envisioned it originally.
1: That is amazing. Huge congratulations. Michelle and I had the privilege of visiting the Fairfax location, and it was, I, I thought it was extremely impressive. And to know that you have since scaled up and are reaching way, 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 way many, many, many more people uh, than you were at that time. And at that time, I remember Michelle and I leaving, being like, oh my gosh, this is changing the world right now. Uh, is so impressive and we're really proud of all of the hard work that you've put into it. I imagine in those times where you are seeing those numbers come in, it's both simultaneously really exciting, but also like, what am I going to do? How am I going to make all of this food for people who want it right now? Uh, so
2: I imagine that was also stressful. Oh my God, it was. And I remember your visit. Um, and you know, when I think about it, it was it was pretty funny because the whole facility was about four thousand square feet divided between the production area, offices, and what was going to be the little retail shop. Um, our so-called finished goods storage, our refrigeration consisted of four shipping containers out in the back. And our conference table was a picnic table out in the parking lot. Um, and uh, you know, as we grew, uh, we had no room for the coconut oil that we had to, you know, they came in drums and we had to um, to melt them before we could use them. And the only place we could do that was in the office. So every single desk was surrounded by two or three coconut oil drums that were plugged into the outlets by the desks. And in order to get from one end of the office to the other, we had to like navigate our way around all these uh, coconut oil <laughs> drums. It was when I think about it now, it was it was absolutely hilarious that we were able to you know get started in that facility. Um, but you know that's just you're like when you start out like that without a solid plan, you're kind of like inventing things on the fly. Whereas the environment is so different today. Today, when somebody plans a business like this um in the so-called alt protein space, there's so much planning that goes into it. Um, and, you know, from pre-revenue, before they even sell anything, they go out and raise a ton of money so that uh, they've got runway they, and they they plan and plan and plan for years before they even actually launch any products. Um, so it's a completely different game today than it was uh, back then when we were sort of like really just creating the category. As the creator
1: of these cheeses, and having originally thought that it would be on a smaller scale i imagine that you have uh, a a strong connection to your product because it is your brainchild you have brought it into the world was it hard for you to not be the one making every single product so that you could scale
2: are you talking about in terms of like actual hands on things yes mm-hmm. um, You know, I mean, at some point you just get tired of like washing the dishes and scrubbing the floor and, you know, making every single bag, bad, uh, single batch of cheese. So not really. I mean, I can't say that it was, it was super hard, but there were so many other facets of the business that I had to learn in order to, to do that. Um, you know, having had a restaurant before, uh, having a, And also, having had another production company, you know, natural foods company before we were making products, um, I already knew that at some point you had to graduate from the kitchen to uh, sort of a management role. So I I was okay with that. I wanted to be the the creative brain behind it in terms of, you know, continuing to innovate and create new products. But I didn't want to be the one like, you know, making batch after batch after batch of cheese every single day, because that does wear on you after a while.
1: I imagine so. Okay, so you told us some major successes that you have had, uh, especially reaching the scale you have. And within one year of signing a contract with Whole Foods um, locally in Northern California, going nationwide, that's huge. What are some other successes that you've experienced?
2: Um. Others, Well, okay. Um, I guess in terms of business, I guess it's really just uh, figuring out the technology of how to commercialize and scale this product. Uh, Because historically, no one had ever made large batches of a fermented cashew-based cheese before. And how to do that from benchtop to scale was something that had been unproven. In other words, I have been told by uh, people, you know, just because you can make in your kitchen at home doesn't mean you're going to be able to to make, you know, thousand pound batches of it. Um, it, It's not going to work. And in fact, um, after we designed our second facility where we were, in fact, making one thousand kilogram batches of product, it didn't work. Uh, we found that the cheeses came out like soup and they never actually coagulated. So we really had to figure out, okay, what is going on? What is the science behind this? I didn't have food scientists at the time and even food scientists I have learned uh, come to work having learned what they've learned in school and that's what they bring with them. And they don't necessarily know anything about what they haven't discovered before or learned before. Um, And so they're on the same learning curve as you are. Um, And so it took a long time for me to sort of figure out, okay, how do I fix this? And one of the phenomena that we saw early on was we had all these, um, we had this aging room in Fairfax and we had, and you visited that and we had, you know, I don't know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, probably maybe a couple thousand wheels, maybe more. Yeah, I guess it was thousands of wheels in this aging room. And all of a sudden, uh, three or four months after we opened this facility, we found this sort of white powder on the walls of the aging room. And we saw that this galvanized steel we had in there was corroding and was getting rusty and we couldn't figure out what was going on. And, um, you know, I talked to, I actually called up some cheesemakers. I called up some consultants. I even called uh, like a food science lab and nobody, nobody knew what was going on. And then, um, so I had to do some research. And then I realized that this white powder uh, that was causing this corrosion was acetic acid or vinegar. And so we realized then that the fermentation of large amounts of cashews was creating acetic acid, in, releasing acetic acid in the atmosphere that was corroding the metal. I mean, who would have thunk that? So, you know, these are the kind of things like I felt like we were sort of writing the book on what happens because there's 2000 years of history or more of, 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 of learning on, about how to make dairy, animal dairy cheese. And so everyone knows the science of what happens when you do this, that, or the other thing, but no one knows the science of what happens when you ferment vast amounts of plant milk products. Um, So, we're just in the early learnings of that right now, and so it's not just cashews. I mean, if you make cheese out of, let's say legumes and ferment it, or if you do it out of oats or if you do it out of you know other seeds, something different can happen. And we just don't really know what happens to the proteins, what happens to the fats as they age or as they break down, do they break down? what sort of flavors do they release during fermentation during a long aging period? We're just at the nascency of all of this, just learning the science behind all of this. And because every single milk, plant milk has different uh, amounts of protein, starches and fats and different types of proteins, fats and starches, every single fermentation of these things will be different, will react differently, produce different microbes and flavors. And I mean, it's, it's exciting and it's overwhelming at the same time.
0: It's crazy, it reminds me of my visit to, my first visit to a farmed animal sanctuary where they were telling us about how in the veterinary medicine space, they've never experienced or learned how to treat aging farmed animals because usually on farms, pigs and animals are killed when they're very young um, for meat. And so as they have these animals that are living out their lives finally in peace and freedom, it's a whole industry that has to be learned and understood. The whole science of veterinary medicine for aging farmed animals is a new space that they have to start and learn from scratch. And it's so... yeah.
2: No, absolutely. And I have firsthand experience with that because of Rancho Compasión, our farmed animal sanctuary. And I can tell you stories of all of these animals that we have who've had conditions, illnesses, injuries. And uh, the veterinarians say, I've never seen this before. This is really bizarre. Never seen this before.
0: Well, it's so cool that you are paving the road for hopefully you know, countless generations in the future for this to be understood and normalized and like we'll know how to use... Plants, the way that we've learned how to use animals and animal products for so long before this. Um, One of the other, speaking of just successes that Miyoko's had, that's like you run your business differently from most businesses. And so we come across things like legal battles over the words butter and dairy. And a lot of companies might just say, okay, we'll use another word, moving on. But you have this deeper mission and care for advancing a cause of of compassion and plant-based foods that leads you to integrate things into um, business that also help the world. Can you talk a little bit about that experience and what the issues were with different wordings and labelings on plant-based products and how Nyoko's, um kind of raised the bar on that in our society?
2: Yeah, thank you for asking. Um I should just start up by saying I believe that there is a moral obligation for businesses to think about uh to make mission uh the foundation of what they're doing. Um we're at a critical point in history where if we don't use our businesses as a form of activism, um we may or may not survive as a species um ourselves or any other animal. So um You know, I felt it was very, very important when we got a letter from the state of California that said that we couldn't use the word butter, Um, nor could we show the uh, pictures of livestock on our Website, we had a picture of a volunteer hugging a cow from our sanctuary. um, That I needed to stand up for our rights. Um, From the very beginning of the business um, in 2014, when I started the business, I was told by the state of California that I couldn't use the word cheese. And so at the very last minute, we had to change our packaging. Um, I didn't have any clout at the time. And instead of putting the word cheese on our package, we used the word cultured nut product. And I'm sure you remember that. And it sort of became a joke an inside joke among vegans, it's like, you know, hey, where's the cultured nut product? Ha ha. But um, by the time that we got this letter from the state of California, we were larger. And I already knew at that point that we were not the first company to get a letter like that, that there were many other uh, plant-based companies in California that had gotten similar letters, and they had just complied with the state. And I realized that someone had to stand up for the industry. Um, So we partnered with ALDF, um, the Animal Legal Defense Fund, um, and we sued the state of California on violating our First Amendment rights to free speech. And in a landmark uh, victory ruling last year in uh, summer of 2021, um, we won. Um, And we won the right to use the word butter on our package. Which set a precedent, I believe, for the industry because California is the largest dairy state in the country. It's something that a lot of people don't realize. So it was really important for us to win that battle here in California and not somewhere else, even though we had had a class action lawsuit against us in New York State, uh, as well as um, an issue in Wisconsin where regulators actually started going into stores like Whole Foods and pulling our products off of shelves because of purported. Customer complaints, or consumer complaints, which turned out to be, uh, after we uh, um, had to get a lawyer and we had to uh, demand to see, uh, you know, uh, under the Public Information Act, uh, the actual consumer complaints and uh, to the state of Wisconsin, it turned out that they were there. Were, there were a whopping two. And one was from the dairy lobby and the other one from was from a a magazine called Milkweed Magazine, Um, which was absurd. And so anyway, that story got press and I think it was like Bloomberg or something. And that resulted in actual complaints from real customers, consumers saying, hey, why can't we buy Miyoko's anymore? And Wisconsin basically just dropped it and we were able to uh, get our products back on store shelves. So Um, But, you know, the real battle had to be won in the biggest dairy state of all, California.
0: Well, it's it's pretty incredible because you were a fast-growing company with a lot on your plate already, developing an entire new industry of food. And on top of that, you're having to take, I presume, a lot of time and spend presumably a lot of money on lawyers trying to fight this battle for a bigger picture. And it is so heartwarming that the outcome was so positive and just um, changed the landscape for the future of plant-based cheeses and other plant-based dairy products. So thank you for doing that and for all the work that you put in. And I love how you said being a mission-driven Company is so important for everyone. Um, we love businesses for good. Tony's husband actually hosts the Business for Good podcast.
2: One program I would like to speak about is um, we. Uh, I formed a uh, collaboration, of uh, Rancho Compasión, the Farmed Animal Sanctuary that I founded here in uh, in in the Bay Area. Uh, is now collaborating with two other sanctuaries, uh, Blackberry Creek. Um, and Jameson Humane, and we formed a nonprofit called LEAP, which stands for Leaders for Ethics, Animals, and Planet. And this is probably the nonprofit that I am most excited about because I believe this has the opportunity to grow into a national program that will change the hearts of youth. Uh, most of you are probably familiar with 4 H and FFA, Future Farmers of America, which are agricultural programs nationwide that reaches literally millions of of students every single year and engages them in agricultural projects where uh, students, um, for the most part, raise an animal and then they take the animal uh, to the county fair to parade it around and then the animal is auctioned off for slaughter. Uh, What happens in these programs oftentimes is that the students become very attached to their animals and don't want to part with them, don't want to auction them off. And those that don't are often uh, ridiculed, shunned, or kicked out of these programs. Um, All of our sanctuaries have animals from students uh, that went through 4-H or FFA and at the end decided that they couldn't part with their animals. They didn't want to kill them and uh, rather um, uh, found homes for them at sanctuaries. We have three animals at Rancho Compasión. That came from FFA or 4-H, uh, and so does Blackberry Creek and Jamison Humane. So we created this new program in order to be an alternative uh, to FFA and 4-H, to allow students to uh, participate in an educational program at farmed animal sanctuaries, uh, to learn about the care of farmed animals, uh, agriculture, leadership, public speaking, vegan cooking, Uh, veganic gardening, all of this, uh, and to, at the very end of the school year, uh, be able to compete for uh, a scholarship. Uh, Because part of the reason these students participate in these programs like 4-H is because when they sell their animal, uh, the farmers or the ranchers who buy the animals pay much more than Market rates for these animals, so the students can have uh, money for for college or continued education. So we want to be able to provide that incentive for students and the parents who are often pushing the financial motive. Um, and so this scholarship is going to be part of the package. Um, and we're we are currently fundraising. Um, you can check out our website leapforanimals.org. Um, I, I'm hoping right now uh, we started. Uh, This is really exciting. We launched a pilot program at our three sanctuaries uh, last January. And by uh, June, when the program ended, over half the kids had gone vegan. They were not vegan when they started. They had gone vegan by the time they ended. And in (sighs) September of this year, we um, expanded the program to three more sanctuaries. So we have the program running now at six sanctuaries in NorCal, Uh, and then next year we're planning to expand to 50 across the country. Um, and for that reason, you know, we are fundraising, but we really do believe that it is important not just to change the product. I don't believe it's good enough to change what's sold in the supermarket. That's a great solution, but ultimately we have to change hearts. And if we don't change hearts, we won't make permanent change. We have to change human perception towards animals uh, in order to stop the commodification of animals and generation Z is the best place to start because they are the leaders of tomorrow.
0: That is incredible. I'm looking on the website right now, which looks like it's leapforanimals.org. I'm going to go make a small donation and I encourage those listening to do the same. If this is something that, that matters to you. Um, I know it will make me feel good. And if we could all contribute a little bit, it will add up. And I cannot wait to see where this goes in the future too. It is, it's its is—it's—it's so challenging to see the 4-H programs and like that be the option for students and the only option. So thank you for taking the initiative to do that on top of everything else that you have going on.
2: Well, it's what motivates me and gets me up in the morning. And it's not just that, you know, I have met so many wonderful, compassionate people because of activism. And if we're not here to be activists, then we're sort of in the way. I mean, I encourage everyone to use their voice for the animals, to do what they can to speak up, to to help out, to make change in the world, because it's activism that has changed the world, that that helped us overcome most of the social injustices in the world to date. And it's activism that will continue to fight against social injustice.
1: That's wonderful. I imagine tough. I, we do something on a much smaller scale with our with our blogs, but coming from an activist background, starting our blogs from uh, to address a serious issue is different than the motivation behind a lot of other blogs that exist today. And so when we get with bloggers who uh, wanted or had a passion project or had um, a goal to start a business from their home to raise their families and so that they can travel, uh, while those are all great reasons, it's not common for an activist Journey, And I imagine in the business world that you might feel similarly, where some people want to start a, a food tech startup for many different reasons, and many of those are not activist reasons. Do you feel that?
2: Yeah, I just went to a conference uh, in Italy um, about the future of food. And to be perfectly honest, I was a little disappointed uh, to see so many people in the plant-based space that had started Companies, whether it was mycelium or whatever. And at lunchtime, they're eating meat and dairy. Um, so while they're saying, yeah, we need to create these plant based or whatever cell based alternatives to save the world, they themselves aren't practicing what they preach. And I don't understand that. To me, it's do they think it's just a cool science project or it's just a, an economic opportunity? Um, because everyone else is doing it, but, um, why is it that we're not practicing what we preach? Why are, why is it we're not walking the talk? Um, and I encourage more people to do that. Um, and if you are a vegan or, and you've started a a so-called plant-based company, then don't tiptoe around and, 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 and not use it for activist reasons. I mean, that is the way I look at it because Otherwise, change is going to take a long time. I'm curious
0: about running a business that's grown to the point that yours has. You probably have a lot of insight on this, but it kind of feels sometimes like the only hope for our world is if the things that are good for our world aligns with the things that are good for business. And sometimes you find that they really do. Just like when we align our eating habits to what's best for our planet and animals, it also benefits our health and we feel better and we have more energy and all of the things are good. It's a win-win across the board. I'm wondering how that feels within business. A lot of times, If I think about sustainability, for example, some packaging is just cheaper. You're going to save a lot of money and you're going to have a competitive advantage, it might seem, if you're going the cheaper and the less sustainable routes. Or if you're using um, animal products that you can source more cheaply than the plant products. Nuts can be really expensive. So have you seen... um, have you had to make a lot of business compromises or ethical compromises as you try to balance the two? Or have you noticed that sometimes they align in unexpected ways that you feel like other people can follow in that footprint and ultimately will move toward like naturally a direction of more alignment with ethics and business?
2: Well, I would say, first of all, that today's consumer is very different from the consumer of 50 years ago. And they are looking for, they are looking to be inspired by leadership, by people that have a moral backbone that believe in something that is perhaps bigger than just you know, hey, this is a great product. Um, and so, when you put out a product that stands for something, people are inspired, and they. Pr- you know, this is why Patagonia is is so successful in in some ways, and people want to support Patagonia. Then, let's say another. uh, uh, manufacture because they stand for something. Um, and so I really believe that that has been a major reason why Miyoko's, um, has grown to this point because of the, the, you know, I hate this word authenticity or the mission behind it. That being said, you know, it is very, very hard to, uh, to win on every front. For example, Um, you know, there are criticisms that are made of us, uh, for using plastic packaging for let's say the cream cheese or something. And and that's where, you know, we have to sort of weigh the pros and cons of, okay, is, should we make cream cheese, um, and make it available to, you know, millions of people or, um, should we not make cream cheese at all? And people will continue to make, eat buy. um, dairy cream cheese in plastic tubs uh, because right now from a food sta- safety and food quality standpoint you know there there isn't an alternative packaging that will that's viable and so sometimes there are uh compromises like that that have to be made um but you know with an eye towards okay as soon as uh an alternative packaging comes out we're going to switch to it um so you know you you do have to weigh things, um, but the products have, in my opinion, you have to figure out what are the the, the moral principles and guidelines with which on upon which your you know your company is based, and how do you maintain that? How do you best manifest that uh, throughout all the facets of the business?
1: Well, you have accomplished so much. And I feel that it has been at a rapid pace too. And I can only imagine what the future holds for you. And thank you so much for all of the good work that you do
2: in the world. Well, thank you, Tony. Thank you, Michelle. It's been fun to be on your show.
1: What a fabulous conversation with Miyoko. Thank you. Big time, Miyoko, for being such a trailblazer in the vegan cheese space for so many decades. I love everything that you're working on. We recorded this episode a while ago, and so much has changed for Miyoko. Now she is focusing on building a plant-based school in Italy. How cool is that? She also has Leap, her nonprofit organization, and Rancho Compassion, which I've been there. It's her sanctuary. It's amazing. If you want to stay up to date with all of the fun stuff she's got going on, it is very impactful and wonderful. Follow her on Instagram. We will be linking that in the show notes.
0: You can also check out her cookbooks. We will link them all in the show notes over at plantpoweredpodcast.com. And when you're there, don't forget to subscribe so you can get our emails when we have new episodes come out and when we have other fun things to share with you, delicious recipes that we love and more to support you on your plant powered journey. And again, you can subscribe by email there to our newsletter over at plantpoweredpodcast.com. And before we say goodbye in this episode, we wanna once again remind you to check out our sponsors, Almond Cow and Sucker Punch. You can find Almond Cow Plant milk makers at almondcow.co and Sucker Punch Pickles at getsuckerpunch.com. Thank you so much for listening. We wish you the best day, lots of cheesiness in your future. That's all plant-based and delicious. And we will talk to you in the next episode.
1: Bye. Bye.